Well, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship. And for those onlineers and F3ers, thanks for joining us as well. Before we get into God's Word, I do uh, want to, I'm going to have a, actually a, a friend out here in just a moment, but um, I do have an announcement. Uh, we have been seeking to follow these many months the, the executive orders that have come out of Richmond um, uh, regularly, and um, recent announcements um, from there have, uh, are causing us once again to kind of change our policies here uh, during this pandemic, and they're good. Um, as of next weekend, Memorial Day weekend, we are um, ending our distancing and masking requirements here at FBC, and um, again, following those, uh, those executive orders. So we're going to be pretty much back to normal here at FBC. That means no ushering, yay, no ushering, <clears throat> uh, no ushering in and out of the service, uh, no sermon, uh, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I was going to see who the knuckleheads out there were clapping on that one. Um, but uh, so we're not going to require masking at the nine o'clock service. Uh, please continue to do so if that's your choice. We are um, uh, not going to require that for our, those serving. Um, so we're kind of going back to normal. Children's ministry is still going to s still be at 1045 until we get all the... Um, needed volunteers to fully staff the nine o'clock service again and so we're continuing to work on that fsat is going to be uh continuing as much as we can weather permitting outdoors um everybody seems to enjoy that and um even last night it was the cloud cover was just right and even though it was a little warm it was really not that bad at all it was very very nice so we'll continue that as best that we can and um of course, we'll monitor these things, and if we need to, we'll adjust uh, as things are warranted, but um, kind of back to normal um, once again. Um, I want to invite um, a friend of mine out here at this point, and um, just, just to, um, excuse me, just to share a little bit here. Okay. No, come on. Just a minute. It's okay. That's but I don't want to. It's okay, but I don't want to. So go on, go on. <clears throat> My name is Fred Furlbrow. I'm <clears throat> going to speak to you today on the topic of hypocrisy. Well, actually, I'm, I'm Mark Carey, but um, I talked to you last week about hypocrisy, about hypocrites, the Greek word about a play actor. Funny thing about wearing a mask is that it, you're typically not taken very seriously. A hypocrites was someone who was projecting one thing but wasn't the real deal on the inside. Uh, they spoke from behind a mask. Uh, they might have been perfectly wonderful behind that mask, but they were wearing the villain mask. Or they were perfectly horrible and they were wearing the the Harold 
mask, a hupercates. Um, now that word, um, the play actor, the one who speaks from behind a mask, evolved over time and it took on that nuance that we understand it today. It's a, it's a negative nuance. In fact, <clears throat> if someone called you a hypocrite, uh, you wouldn't realize and you wouldn't take that as a compliment because it would speak of something deceptive about you, something that was a bit of a, a fake. You were a fraud. You weren't the real deal. There was something crooked about you. It's a, a very damaging thing when Christians wear that label hypocrite, which is why Paul in Romans chapter 12, as he gets into this, uh, this practical living Christian life section of the book, the first 11 chapters laid the theological foundation, but as he begins this practical final section of the book of Romans, he wants to speak of of, of the reality of Christ in our life, and, and we are to come out genuine and real. Take your Bibles, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, to be reminded that Paul told us, let your love be without hypocrisy. Don't be a play actor on the stage. Be, be real, be the real genuine thing. Don't be a hypocrite. Because it is possible that we as Christians can have, can have the appearance of love. We can even do many, many good things, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. I could sell all my possessions and give to the poor. That's, that's really a good thing. That's a very high and noble thing, but if I don't have love, it's nothing. Paul said I could actually give my body to be burned. I, could, I, could, I can give you the ultimate sacrifice the seemingly ultimate sacrifice of genuine love and yet not be motivated by love. And Paul's concern is that we can do things that are tainted with a, a self-centered purpose, a, a self-protecting or a self-exalting purpose. Be careful, he says, don't let your love be tainted with hypocrisy. Don't be a play actor on the stage. Now, in the following phrases, in, starting in verse 9, in the following phrases, the rest of chapter 12, I think what Paul is doing is giving us characteristics of what unhypocritical love looks like. What are the characteristics of it? And the very next phrase gives us, first and foremost, what was on his mind. He says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Um, the first thing out of the gate, when Paul exhorts us to love genuinely is abhorrence of evil and a clinging to good. He's talking about here, I think, a, 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 a spiritual sensitivity. The spiritual sensitivity of love. Uh, the word abhor is a very, um, it's, a, it's a very emotional term. It's, it's, it's a very uh, impactful term. It means literally, to despise um, bitterly. It's a, there, there's a real visceral emotion here to this term, to this concept. Hate is, I think, in fact, I think the NIV has it translated that way. Hate what is evil. The idea is 
is not only that we are not to do bad things, the idea is that we are to have, any, have, have a hatred, have an have a emotional response. We are to despise bitterly those things that are evil. Genuine godlike love doesn't turn a blind eye to the wrong, to the sin, to the evil, either within ourselves or in the world. Genuine love doesn't pat someone on the head and say, well, you know, boys will be boys. Genuine, unhypocritical love doesn't sweep sin under the carpet. Well, you know, if, if you knew my upbringing, you'd, you'd understand. You'd, you'd love me. Um, unhypocritical love doesn't say, um, well, it's just kind of part of my DNA. I mean, it's my daddy act that way, my granddaddy act that way, and, you know, hey, um, live with it. <laughs> that's kind of who I am. You know, we, we, we've said that, don't we? Well, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's old Sally. That's just the way she is, you know. Got to love her, right? Love her. And what Paul is saying here is that unhypocritical love doesn't say that. It doesn't say we just accept people and sin. There's a spiritual sensitivity about it, emotionally very strong. There's a, there's a hatred of that which doesn't measure up to the standard of God. There's an emotional reaction to it, whether it's ours or someone else's. The problem that I think we so often struggle with, though, is we can get very confused and fuzzy about what doesn't measure up to God's standards, uh, which is why back in verse 2, Paul reminded us, don't be conformed to the world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we can really prove what the will of God is, what the, what the standard of God is, that which is good and perfect and acceptable. But we swim in the world so much and we're bombarded by the mentality of the world. It's, it's very easy to all of a sudden kind of just uh, accept those things and, and say, well, it, it is what it is. When our minds are allowed to be shaped by the world's way of thinking, um, we can become people that Isaiah wrote about when we studied the book of Isaiah a number of years ago. And Isaiah, remember this? Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And nothing's changed in, what, 3,000 years. Uh, we are living in a day and age, and the world has always been that way, where good is labeled as evil. And, and, and the confusing thing is that that which is really evil is kind of almost celebrated. It seems to even in our day and age, to be so easily squeezed into the world's way of thinking. And folks, it's happening in the Christian community. We have Christians today that actually celebrate gay marriages. That's a, that, that that's a good thing. Christians actually, some are supporting the belief that a woman's right to choose is a higher value than the life of the unborn baby she's carrying. Christians can actually believe that it, 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 it's beneficial to maybe have an outburst of anger than to have it stuffed in and, and uh, you know, stifle your true being. 
Christians can actually hold a belief that, you know, God wants me happy rather than holy. And because he wants me happy, well, you know, I, I just think I, I, I just, I'm just going to divorce my spouse and marry the one I'm having an affair with because I, I know God wants me happy. If loving him is right, well, I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> we can, as born-again believers, we can justify almost anything. Or, or maybe not overtly call something evil good, but we could at least oftentimes just be silent about, about it, which goes against this idea of abhorring what is evil. Abhorring evil doesn't mean silence. I recently read a book entitled The Color of Compromise. It's subtitled The Truth about American churches' complicity in racism. Now, <clears throat> disclaimer, I don't agree with everything in that book. I think there's some biases in there, and, and um, I don't agree. But it, it is a fascinating history, and I, I found it very informative in the sense, and I haven't been a history major in two full years of Christian church history and at the graduate level, um, I found it interesting that I was not aware of some of these things. Let me give you just a couple examples. Jonathan Edwards, you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, the great colonial revivalist and, and, and pastor and scholar, Jonathan Edwards. I didn't know he owned slaves. George Whitfield, the, the great Anglican, um, uh, English Anglican uh, preacher and evangelist who God used in tremendous ways in this country and over in Europe to bring literally tens of thousands of people to Christ. I didn't know Jonathan uh, Edwards nor George Whitfield had slaves. In fact, a little side note on George Whitfield. 1732, Georgia became the last colony to be um, formed um, and uh, the 13th colony. Uh, James Oglethorpe set up the colony and set it up to be a slave-free colony. Um, the problem was that George Whitfield, this great revivalist, not to take anything away from George Whitfield, but uh, he had started an orphanage um, down in Georgia in the colony and bought a plantation to support the orphanage and to run the plantation he needed slaves. So he pressured the, the, the colonial powers to be in Georgia to switch their perspective so that he could keep slaves to keep the orphanage going. I didn't know that. A bit of a complicit, complicity to something evil. Um, another little historical side note. Um, 1785, after the, after the American Revolution, American, the, the, the American, uh, or the Virginia Baptist uh, Association here in Virginia, uh, voted to, and it was, a, it, was a it was a debate, but they voted not to accept people who owned slaves as members of the Virginia Baptist Church. So if you owned slaves, you couldn't be a member of the, uh, and, and then five years later in 1790, an even stronger statement was accepted. No slave-holding people could be members. Well, in the ensuing couple of years, there was such an outcry that by 1793, that was all forgotten and slaveholding was kind of the norm. We'll just sweep it under the carpet. 
Um, many examples. Where was the abhorrence of evil? Um, Jim Crow laws. Where, where was the, the great outcry, the abhorrence of evil? 12 to 15 million human beings enslaved in our country's history, but 62 million unborn babies have been slaughtered since 1973. Where's the outcry? Where's the abhorrence of evil? Do we hate such evil? Recently, I read a, um, a news account from the BBC. It came out of England, Essex, England. Um, uh, a man went into a, a nursing home where his mother, who had been suffering from Alzheimer's, lived. And he picked up his mom and walked up to the top floor, went outside, and he threw her over the rail and killed her. The presiding judge said, you are someone who acted out of love and desperation. You have been punished enough. He, she gave him 60 days of probation for killing his mother. Where is the abhorrence? Where's the outcry when our own state governor says when a baby is born in a botched abortion, we'll keep it comfortable until the mother decides and then we'll, the implication, then we'll kill it. Um, where is the abhorrence of evil? Now, I, I've, I have found this a very difficult passage to study. I preached it last night at FSAT. I found it a, a difficult topic even to, to preach because it's, there's such a spectrum of, of, uh, of, of view there. Um, see, I don't want to be judged by you if my abhorrence of evil doesn't measure your abhorrence of evil. You know what I'm saying? I, I think we have to be careful of that. But we need to understand and see that, wait a minute, this is wrong, this is evil, and be directed by God and the Holy Spirit to, at some level of response or our love for each other, our love for this world as God so loved the world, is tainted. And until we come to that place of utter abhorrence of sin, then our love is, we're nothing more, says Paul, than a play actor on the stage. Welcome to the world of Fred Furlbrow. Now, what are, what are some of the things that God hates? Just let me share some of these things. So I'll, I'll just put it up on the screen from Proverbs chapter 6. What does God hate? Verse 16, there are six things which God hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. You want to get in line with God's hatred of sin? Verse 17, here's the first on the list. Haughty eyes, pride. It's pride. How, how often do we make excuses for people, politicians, uh, uh, family members, uh, uh, acquaintances? Well, they're just, you know, Lying tongues, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked things, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife, one who spreads strife among brothers. 
I'm, I'm getting sick and tired of stuff that comes on social media. How about you? And there is stuff from, I think, otherwise God-fearing believers in Jesus Christ that are spewing stuff about other Christians that has no place in the body of Christ. And if you're doing it, I want to encourage you to stop it. Because God hates it, I'm telling you. We read it right here. How about Amos chapter 5? What does God hate? I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like ever-flowing streams. It's a bit convicting. Verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. And once again, we as Christians, we can gather and we can praise God and we can sing uh, our songs uh, with uh, uh, joy and triumph and clap and raise our hands and, and all that and then, and then go to work on Monday and treat our in, employers, employees with you know, a lack of justice or our spouse, our family member. You know, God... God is not the grandfather in heaven that, again, just pats us on the head and says, well, you know, that's what little kids do. God says, I hate it. What else does God hate? Malachi, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrongs, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit and you do not deal that you do not deal treacherously. Is our thinking in line with God's thinking? Paul said, I beg you, I beseech you by the mercies of God, present yourselves a living and holy sacrifice unto God. It's, our, it's the reasonable, our, our spiritual service of worship to him, not being conformed to the world's way of thinking. Transformed by the renewing of our mind. Are we possibly harboring any you know, pet sins, those sins that so easily entangle us? Do we kind of coddle those things? Harbored sins taint our love for one another. What sin ultimately isn't an affront to God? What are the things in our own life? An untamed tongue, lustful eyes, a proudful heart, an attitude of resentment towards someone, nursing a, an attitude of unforgiveness with somebody? Um, slothfulness, <laughs> greed, um, abhor what is evil, says Paul. Do you remember um, that, um, the, what was his name, the Australian guy, Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter down from Australia, he had a TV show, and I, I think it was 15 years ago, he was filming off the Great Barrier Reef following too close to a ray, manta ray, and was stung, the poisonous barb was inserted into his heart, he died instantly. He was, he was too close to something that was dangerous. And there could be someone here today 
swimming a little too close to something that is abhorrent to God. Like a piece of wood, a Christian can float on the surface of sin and not get seemingly overly wet, but eventually, eventually, we get waterlogged and, and, and sink. Um, but notice that Paul says not only does unhypocritical love abhor sin, it says it clings to what is good. And again, that's an, another very um, uh, um, impactful term. It's the concept that was found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that a man should leave his father and mother and should cling cleave to his wife and they become one flesh it means to be glued to to be so um, cemented to one another now both parts of that phrase abhor what is evil and cling to what is good both are needed which is why paul put those two participles together unhypocritical love he says what does it look like Abhor abhorring what is evil clinging to what is good and both parts are important there are a lot of Christians today who can maybe simply abhor evil and they forget to well, then cling to what is good. And what is good? We find it in the heart of God. Where's that most beautifully shown? It's shown in the gospel. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. God is the one who wrote the book on good and the picture on the front page of good is the cross, Jesus dying for our sins. The perfect God-man dying because our sins were placed upon him, stepping from the throne of glory. And in love and in self-sacrificial self service, he gives himself for us. He died so that we might live the good news of the gospel. That's what's good. Cling to it while we abhor what is evil. So we can abhor the abortion doctor who commits the abortions, but cling to what is good. He needs to know Jesus. She needs to know Jesus. There's good news for that person, and it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No sinner is beyond the reach of God's grace. We cling to what is good. See, we're on the receiving end of that. While we were yet sinners, right? Christ died for us. And God in his holiness, there was an abhorrence while we were enemies with him. And yet he sent his son and died for us. We can speak against all the evil sexual perversions of the LGBTQ plus community that's destroying our country, <laughs> quite frankly. But behind every one of those letters, LGBTQ+, is a person who needs to know Jesus. And we can abhor the evil, but we need to cling to what is good, and what is good is the gospel. People need to know Jesus. They'd be rescued from the despicable perversions. We can hate the evil of tra child trafficking. But the child trafficker needs to know Jesus. If we don't combine the clinging to good with the abhorring of evil, then I think what we become, and I, again, I see it so often, I mean, I, it wells up in me. 
what I, what I see is you get angry, frustrated, mad, you know, Christians who aren't really fun to be around. Why? Because they're always railing against this and that and the government and this plan and that thing. And All right, there's plenty of evil. Let's abhor it. Well, let's cling to the good. And the good is the gospel. Pray for those in authority over us. When we get to chapter 13, there's a fun chapter. Be subject to your governmental authorities. We'll get in that in a few, few weeks. Let's not be the unattractive arrogant, self-righteous Christians who just spew stuff that spills over into, you know, if, if you don't act like me and think like me and abhor what I abhor, then I abhor you. Shame on us. Let's guard our hearts. Hey, real quickly, turn over to, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 is the, um, those, those letters to the churches the seven churches in Revelation, the first one being here, Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. And then Jesus has John pen the words, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. And you found them to be false. And you have, you have perseverance, and you've endured for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. And he applauds them. You abhor what is evil. Good for you, church at Ephesus. But, verse 4, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You've departed from the, from the gospel. And therefore, remember from where you have fallen to repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I'm going to remove the lampstand out of its place unless you repent. But then he adds in verse 6, yet this I do have, you, you do have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we don't know who the Nicolaitans were. They were probably some false sect that was, false doctrine that it was coming into the church. And they, they hated it. And God said, I hate it too but you've left your first love. There was not a, um, a combining of the abhorring of evil with the clinging to what is good. To love God and to love Him is to spew out the love of God for those that don't deserve it, like He did to us when we didn't deserve it. Be separated from evil, be joined to what is good. Very convicting terminology. The highest degree of hatred, the greatest persevering devotion, cling to what is good. And if we ever hope to, to live and express unhypocritical love and not just be a play actor on the stage, those things need to mark our life. So first on the list, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. But then look at verse 10. Paul talks second of all, interestingly, about the tenderness of love spiritual sensitivity but added to that is the tenderness of love a truly unhypocritical love is characterized by a devotion to one another that is of the most pure and sincere um, form be devoted to one another in love the word that he uses there is 
the, the compound, com, uh, compound term of love and brother, it's where it's the, the word Philadelphia, <laughs> the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia, a term used of a familial love, as is the other term that is used there, uh, being devoted to one another. It's, it's, a, it's another compound word um, that has the idea of it, it was the love of parents for children. So Paul takes these terms that are, that, that are just, you know, they're deep in the soul, in the heart. Um, John and Diane Morrison have been in Texas, and uh, they, their little granddaughter, Rosie, took a very, very serious fall off the bunk beds and cracked her little skull and has been in the hospital in San Antonio. And um, God would have it, they were there so they could watch the other little gal and so that um, Rosie's parents, Maggie and Trey, could be at the hospital. And can you imagine the, the pain, the, the emotion and we're praying for little Rosie, you know, but they're, they're the parents. Um, philos storgos is the word. Being devoted as parents to the children. Philadelphia, brotherly love for one another. Paul is using terms referring to the highest form of intimacy, and he says, love that way within the body of Christ. And then thirdly, he speaks, it says, of the humility of love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. Humility of love. Literally, the word means to leading the way, to go before. Don't wait for someone to honor you. You lead the way. Give preference. Go, please, you. Yeah, but you did this. No, no, please. It's, it, it expresses that you are a person of great worth and you're willing to take the back row. You, you, you promote. What, what's, what's your, what, what are your needs? Yeah, but don't you also, no, no, please. The church of Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, is, is, a, is a spiritual family where the highest degree of intimacy and love is to be manifested. The, the, the humility and the prefer, preferring one another. Paul is talking far more beyond just congeniality or friendly hellos or warm handshakes in a hallway. Now, these are the standards. I realize, painfully realize, how difficult it is in a church like this and size and and certainly even in these day and ages of, that we've been living in. And, um, and that and the busyness. As I was thinking through this, this week a little bit more and thinking, you know, we, we live such busy lives, even, you know, it doesn't matter what age. And um, sometimes it's just, you know, you just don't want to talk to another person. You just want to, you know, go home and, lock the door and put the garage door down and they, you know, no vacancy sign and 
and just veg. And, and that's uh, perfectly fine. <laughs> um, but I get a bit um, troubled with my own heart when I read these passages of abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, loving people with that standard of love, or else, Paul says, it's just like a, a Fred Furlbrow Christian. You're wearing the mask, and it's not very authentic. Now, I don't want us to leave here today being discouraged. You know, it's, it's sermons like this, I, I do think that Satan can take and, and he can all of a sudden be hammering us with guilt and all this stuff, and oh yeah, I need to be doing better, and it might be actually some face that just popped into your brain while I was talking, or name, oh yeah, I need to, and, um, and um, you know, we don't need to walk out of here and be beating ourselves up, okay? I do think scripture, you know, the, someone described a sermon as you, you comfort the afflicted and then you afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and I do think it's, this is God's word and as in any passage of scripture that we read, either personally or in a group, a small group or whatever, we just need to be honest and say, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Right? Where, where, do, you, where, do, you, where do you want me to live in this? You know, to what extent am I experiencing emotion and affection for fellow believers? I, I, I think I've, I've seen so many levels of disgust by believers in the last months against other believers that it's, you disgust me. I mean, <laughs> what, what's the, the level of, of, of affection towards each other? How many situations can you recall where you purposefully attempted to honor somebody, give preference to someone above yourself? In what ways have we demonstrated sincere appreciation for another believer? The spiritual sensitivity of love, the tenderness of love, the humility of love. God is calling us to be real, to be authentic, to be genuine, to take off the masks, to speak what is true, in our heart, well, but Mark, that's what I'm doing. That's how I really feel. They disgust me. I really don't want to be around them. And so, how do we, what do we do? So it comes back down, are you ready for another hour sermon? Sure. <laughs> sure. It comes back down to how do we live the Christian life? We go back to Romans 6, 7, and 8. We talk about how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit again. Because there is no way on God's green earth that I, Mark Carey, am going to love unhypocritically. I just can't do it. I, I can't. I, I would spend, I think, my entire energy, I would be depleted by the end of the week if I abhorred evil all the time. And then, because there's so much to abhor. Or to cling to what is good. Or to love unhypocritically with tenderness. And How, how, do, how do we do that? So again, the last thing we need to do is walk out of here and be beating ourselves up that we're not measuring up. What we do need to do is walk out of here and say, all right, God, we've heard your word. Now by your grace and through your enabling strength, you're going to have to direct me this day. Give me this day my daily bread, what I need today to live for you. And when situations cross our path, 
we come to the Lord. We're constantly in, in a mindful state of, of spiritual devotion to Him. It's, it's a life of worship presented to Him. And He will stir within us the proper abhorrence of evil at the right time while we then immediately cling to the good at the right time. God will produce that in us. He will produce that, that tender affection towards one another. Lord, I can't do it in and of myself. I cannot be what I've just read in and of myself. But you are that, and you're in me, therefore I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we, it is so freeing. It is so freeing to live the Christian life the way it's meant to be lived. Where we walk out with a sense of, all right, God, I want to honor you. I present myself to you. Now, help me today. Help me in this moment. Help me tomorrow to live out in compelling ways the mandates of your word that I may honor and glorify ultimately and love you, whom to love is preeminent. We can't, but God can. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ within me. Any changes, any mid-course corrections in our life that need to be made? Let's go to him. Say, Lord, do your work and produce it in me for your glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us, for laying out in your word, your heart. Let our love be untainted. May we not be speaking from behind a mask, but the real deal flowing through us because of Jesus. For it was Jesus who abhorred evil perfectly and he clung to what was good perfectly. And Lord Jesus, it was you who loved tenderly and with all humility as you hung on that cross. Father, first and foremost, may our life be attuned to you. Lord, first and foremost, may we May we experience your strength and your grace. Flow through us, Father. Help us to love as you loved. And so that all will know it's not me, it's you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.